Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. A lot of the coverage that I saw of the Rust Belt and Appalachia in particular that characterized many of those people as out-of-work steelworkers, coal miners, and opioid addicts wasn't doing anybody any favors. A foreign correspondent travels across the globe to report important, impactful stories from faraway lands. But what if you turn that around and started covering local news from the perspective of a foreign correspondent? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Carmen Gentile is the founder and editor-at-large of Post-Industrial, an independent journalism-first multimedia news outlet that covers the areas once deemed highly industrialized. While some of these post-industrial regions are reinventing themselves, others continue to struggle economically and socially. Carmen, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so as usual, I like to find out a little bit about my guest before we sort of get into the subject of our discussion. So tell me, you know, what got you into journalism? You know, that's that's a funny story because I never took a journalism class in my life. I didn't get into journalism from a, a traditional journalism route, never went to graduate school. I had studied philosophy with a minor in Islamic studies at university, and so I obviously came about out of school about as employable as a as an old pair of tennis shoes. But I had always had a, a keen interest in journalism, and I had done an internship years earlier. But as any unfocused young man in his early 20s will tell you that, you know, I, I didn't really have a clear idea of, of what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to travel and see the world. And I also wanted writing to be involved in some way. I wanted my writing to pay for it. I just didn't know how. But after I'd graduated from school, having studied Arabic, my Arabic professor approached me, knowing that I was tending bar and teaching swim lessons at a local YMCA, that I should, in fact, go to this school in Cairo and take more Arabic at this institute. And so I applied and got in and ended up going there and really enjoying the experience, being immersed in a new culture, improving my, my language skills, and ended up finding a job at a, at a local English language weekly. I showed them my clips from years and years earlier that I'd done covering local news in Western Pennsylvania. And for some reason, they gave me a job and the rest is history. So you had a stint as a foreign correspondent, and I guess we're actually in Afghanistan, which I guess events that sort of led up to you writing a, a book, Lindsided by the Taliban. What was a, sort of the process from starting at a weekly newspaper to, you know, there, I guess. Well, I, you know, was cutting my teeth as, as you mentioned, as a foreign correspondent, it was my first time working and living overseas. And it was, it's a very steep learning curve doing all those things. But when you're young and, and ambitious and just starting to figure out who you want to be, it, it was exciting and fun. You know, I always said about Cairo, so I'm sure it's this way to this day, that every time you step out your door, it's an adventure in one way or another in a city of 20 million people that's that chaotic where there aren't that many working streetlights is always an adventure. And so I lived there and worked there for two years, returned to the U.S. in 2000, and then went to work in Washington, D.C., where I was a reporter and a news desk editor at a wire service. And I was there, you know, September 11. 
I covered the events of September 11. In fact, I remember that day very clearly because I lived in Northwest Washington, DC for people listening. That's near uh, the national cathedral and where the vice president lives. And I remember that day very distinctly because I could see the smoke from the Pentagon. And I remember I was, wasn't supposed to work until later that day. And everybody was all hands on deck. I had to go into work and I used to ride my bicycle. And I remember riding my bicycle into the city. I was the only vehicle going into the city and opposite lane, just a line of cars fleeing the Capitol. You know, I spent my time a couple years in DC. And from there, I went on to relocate to Brazil. I had a a desire to live and work in Latin America, even though I'd spent all that time in the Middle East and then it went from DC. It was a curious choice at the time because it was 2002 and the center of gravity was obviously in the Middle East and in South Asia with Afghanistan and, and it was ramping up for Iraq. At the time, it, I felt like it was a good idea and obviously one I never regretted because I love Brazil so much. And I lived there for four years. And during that time, I, did, I spent a lot of time traveling in and around Latin America I also covered a coup in Haiti in 2004. That was the first time I covered any conflicts. And then starting in 2005, I actually started returning to that region. I started going to Afghanistan. I started going to Iraq. And over the next decade or so, was consistently going to those places on and off for months at a time. So I know we're, we're not here primarily to talk about your experience, as interesting it is as a foreign correspondent. But I wonder, you know, you founded Post Industrial in, in 2018. Did any of this travel, did any of these different cultures that you were covering, did that kind of figure into sort of the genesis of post-industrial? No, it absolutely hasn't. I'll tell you why. Because I spent 20 years of my career living and working overseas and coming to know and appreciate and understand other countries, other cultures, other people. But I didn't know America at all. I came to understand that I really didn't understand what was going on in America. And my understanding of my misunderstanding became apparent to me in 2013. And that was when I was coming back from yet another one of my trips to Afghanistan. I decided to take a road trip through the Southern US. I did a car trip. I was left from Pennsylvania and I rode through West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Carolinas, et cetera. And it was supposed to just be a, a lighthearted trip after a, a hard few months spent in Afghanistan to unwind, enjoy some good Southern cuisine, et cetera. But what I inadvertently discovered was a country that I knew nothing about that was astonishing to me in places like rural Appalachia, where the poverty was so bad that it was reminiscent of some of the things I've seen in Haiti. You know, as somebody who grew up in the Pittsburgh area and had a father who had a machine shop and grew up around manufacturing and saw the, the industry's demise, I was keenly aware of what had happened uh, to post-industrial cities like the one I grew up in. But I wasn't, I didn't have my finger on the pulse of the people and what was happening to them. I knew the aesthetic. I knew the, the nuts and bolts of the story. I knew the, the economics, the politics, but I didn't understand the people or the places and, and what had happened to them. And it occurred to me then and there that there was something to this story and something to what it was to be post-industrial that I needed to explore. I wasn't quite ready to do it just yet. Like you mentioned, I had that book that I had written that came out in 2018. 
Um, but what really made me realize that there was something to the post-industrial idea of covering communities that have gone through such transition, be they in the Rust Belt, Appalachia, other post-industrial communities in the U.S. and, and around the world, we're an international publication, was the election of Donald Trump in 2016. When he was elected, it occurred to me then and there that a lot of the coverage that I saw of the Rust Belt and Appalachia in particular that characterized many of those people as out-of-work steelworkers, coal miners, and opioid addicts wasn't doing anybody any favors. And a lot of that reporting that you would see CNN and the like doing where they would go to a diner in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, talk to three people and say, well, you know, we got our, we got our thumb on the pulse of PA voters now. That rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> because <laughs> So I saw my opening out of that and thought, okay, now's the time to do this. And so, you know, what I've learned from all of my reporting overseas, I put into how I cover post-industrial because I look at it almost through the frame of I'm a foreign correspondent covering the U.S. And I try to do so with open eyes, with soft eyes, with compassionate eyes, the kind I would look at, you know, the situation in Afghanistan, not to say that they're commensurate, but with an understanding of there are serious dilemmas here that aren't being adequately addressed or covered. And this is something that post-industrial seeks to do and does do. Okay. Let's talk about the form of post-industrial because it's a magazine, it's newsletters, it's podcasts. Mm. Am I missing anything? We're a quarterly print magazine. We're daily digital edi- daily digital editions with the newsletters. You're correct. Daily updates at postindustrial.com. Yes, we have a network of podcasts. We do videos and we also produce events. We do live events as well. We've produced an event in the fall in Atlanta on the subject of cybersecurity. We recently had an event where we were celebrating some of our Afghan friends who arrived from Afghanistan to live in our area. We had a a recent celebration because we helped some Afghans that I worked with in Afghanistan over the years escape when the Taliban took over. And my friend Zubair and his family have now settled here in the Pittsburgh area. We're close with that community and do some nonprofit work around that as well. So post-industrial doesn't just... Like, we don't like to just look at a problem and say, okay, we're going to produce some poverty porn piece about all the woes in a place like West Virginia, where there's, you know, systemic poverty and joblessness and and opioid addiction, et cetera. When we're looking at a story like that, focus on people who are trying to find solutions to those problems, you know? Mm -hmm. Who do you see as the audience for this? Well, you know, a lot of the people that read post-industrial come from our regions. They come from the, from Rust Belt and Appalachian cities and other communities, not just the cities, but rural areas as well. But we also have seen a number of readers on the coast as well. And it's curious to us, New York seems a natural extension of our readership because we do have part of New York, like Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, that's in our coverage area. So, but we do see a lot of readership in New York City as well. Curiously enough, we've been getting a lot of readers in California. And we think that's because people who are transplanted from outside of post-industrial America, as we call it, the Rust Belt and Appalachia, who live on on the West Coast, are keenly interested in what's going on in the region because a lot of people are migrating. We're a country that's perpetually on the move, right? We're seeing people migrating, especially during COVID, to other places where they can telecommute, where it's cheaper, where instead of living in an apartment in New York, they can have a four-bedroom home and 
let's say Akron or, or even Columbus or something like that. So we're seeing a lot of that interest again in, in the region because there are a lot of really interesting things happening in, in communities. And there is a lot of really cool bootstrapping individuals who, in my estimation, exemplify the post-industrial ethos, which is to see something that's old and say, I've come to understand that that steel plant is never coming back or that industry is never going to return. So what do we do to not dwell on what was, but think about and reimagine and execute what can be? A lot of what we seek to dispel at post-industrial is that we're not anti-industry of any in any way. In fact, we're very much pro any kinds of industry that meet three criteria. They have to be good paying jobs, they have to be safe, and they have to be environmentally friendly. So a part of what it means to be post-industrial and to reimagine post-industrial communities is to try to invite those types of industries to places where there's plenty of workforce, but not enough jobs. Those are the types of stories we like to cover. You know, you described a couple of the cities that that you mentioned, you know, Akron, Buffalo, Albany, and, you know, Pittsburgh. But, you know, Pittsburgh's a great example of a city that sort of has transitioned into a different type of city. Not that there aren't problems there, but the perception is that it's a thriving city or a growing city, at least. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't live there. You probably have a better perspective than I do. It is, you know, Pittsburgh has made a concerted effort over the last four decades to reimagine itself. And there are a lot of good elected and non-elected leaders that helped see that through over the decades. It went from being coal and steel and manufacturing based to technology, medicine, robotics, education, and all well and good. You know, Pittsburgh used to be a city of in excess of 500,000 people, and now it's just a, a shade below 300,000. It's not losing as many people as it used to, but it's still, you know, it's populations hemorrhaging still at a few hundred a year. It's a problem. I mean, cities need to grow. They need new life. They need new ideas and new people to bring those ideas. And it's interesting to see, like in a city like Pittsburgh, there's all this development going on, new buildings being built, new apartment buildings, you know, new office spaces, yet the population's still going down, yet people who are living in the suburbs and further out are not doing any better. The rising tide notion is has never proven accurate, you know. So people that are still being left behind and how do you account for that when everybody's talking about how well the city is doing? Yeah. What would you say is a typical story that post-industrial does? You know, we do a lot of stories obviously during the midterms, politics is a big issue for us. Seeing that Georgia is one of our coverage states, anything regarding politics in that, in that crazy place is obviously of interest to us. We do a lot of stories, though. However, the topics that, are, that we focus a lot on are immigration. That's a big issue for us because I'm a big proponent of, as somebody who's third generation Italian and Polish, I'm a big proponent of immigration. And like I said, renewing uh, a renewal of, of ideas and an interest and enthusiasm is good for America. That's how we were, that's what we're founded on. So we, we look at a lot of different immigrant communities. One of the stories that we did was chronicling in real time, mind you, when the Taliban was taking over Afghanistan. My friend, Zubair Babakarhail, who writes for us, is an Afghan journalist with whom I worked there when I was working for USA Today, was writing stories for us in real time about his effort to get out of the country and eventually come to the United States. He spent three months living at a U.S. military base with his family, his three children and pregnant wife at a, at a military base in Wisconsin, 
and then settling in the Pittsburgh area. So we chronicled that whole journey through his words and his eyes and his experience to tell the story of, of what it's like to go from a war zone to living in post-industrial America. We do a lot of stories on veterans. Veterans is a big issue for us. Obviously, it's a topic near and dear to my heart because I spend a lot of time with service members in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. And also because we have so many people from our region, from post-industrial America, who go into the military, hence we have a lot of veterans. So we do coverage about the veteran experience and not try to just focus on everything that's doom and gloom that you read about veterans. You know, we recently did a story about what veterans do to unwind and relax to, you know, help heal some of those mental wounds from combat, like, uh, you know, engaging in outdoor activities, like learning to surf and stuff like that. I did a story a couple years back about veteran and cannabis use as a means to, again, help with some of their PTSD issues and other, and other physical injuries. So those types of stories are really interesting to us as well. But, you know, we try to do a wide variety of things in post-industrial, not just focusing on hard news, but the arts, travel. We have a really robust opinion section called Voices, which goes beyond the bounds of our typical post-industrial coverage to include anyone who wants to, who's a thought leader, an expert, or has something, is passionate about something, to include even a young woman who writes for us under a pseudonym from Iran, chronicling what's going on in her own words, with the ongoing protests there, led by women there, you know, trying to assert their rights. You know, we're very passionate about those types of topics. We're, we're bleeding hearts, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it's great. It's great that you're able to not only just like share those narratives, but, you know, sharing narratives from a, a particular point of view that people aren't going to find elsewhere. You know, then you begin to see people as people. You don't see them as statistics. Yeah, that's really important or, to us. Or a punchline to a sad story. If punchline's the correct word. Now, you mentioned, I think it's understandable, you know, why the woman who's writing in Iran is being identified by her real name. But I thought your, your code of ethics was very well thought out because you addressed a couple of different things in it, one of which is transparency. You wouldn't use anonymous sources except in sort of, you know, rare occasions where it made sense and it would be something that you would explain to people. Why did you feel you needed to be that forward about your, your code of ethics? In short, because journalists have a bad reputation these days. <laughs> right? I, I, I find it hard to believe. I, I find that no, so hard. Know, it, it's, not, it's not just because of the current climate around journalism and journalists. It's because it's important to let people know from the outset if they're just finding out who you are. You know, we've been around for five years now. We're, we're gaining quite a bit of traction, but new people are coming to us every day, seeing us for the first time. We want to make sure that they know that they can count on us to be a reliable source of information, to know that where we stand, that we aspire to the highest ethic when it comes to the stories we tell and attribution, making sure we get it right. And so, you know, there's a lot of controversy about anonymous sourcing and anonymous sourcing is very important sometimes, especially when you're dealing with sensitive issues that could compromise the health and well-being of the source. So we take those conditions into consideration very seriously. And we just want people to know that when they come to us, they can believe what they read and what they see and, and that our intentions are true. So you partner with other organizations. 
well, who are some of the organizations you partner with and what are you looking for in partners? Well, you know, we've worked with some foundations and other media outlets to produce original reporting. We did this really great series for a podcast called Extremely American. And it was reported and hosted by a guy named Heath Drusen, a friend and colleague of mine from my days in Afghanistan. He's since gone on to covering militant groups and extremism in America, these armed extremist groups, not unlike the Proud Boys and these others that we saw on January 6th try to foment a, a coup at the Capitol. So we did a podcast series that went out on NPR's app, NPR One, that got more than half a million listens. And it's a multi-part series about how the militant movement in America came to be and what it's doing now and what they aspire to become in the future in terms of their political efficacy and maybe anything else they have planned down the road post January 6th. We've done other projects as well where we look to other outlets to combine forces for, for coverage. And in fact, we're ramping up ahead of 2024 to partner up to cover all the really important states in our coverage area, places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia is another big one, all the big swing states. Beyond just the election stuff, we're seeking to link up with anybody who's producing documentaries, short films, anything nonfiction around our region. So we're always looking to work with different production companies to produce stories like that. So if those are the other people we're looking to, to get with. About your project, the podcast you mentioned about the militia groups, is the relatable to post-industrial? Is that, you know, those are types of groups that you see? Very much so, because a lot of those folks come from our area. You know, one of the, the founders of the Proud Boys is from Ohio. A lot of those people that were at the Capitol that were from various extremist groups hail from Pennsylvania, from Michigan, from Wisconsin, Indiana, parts of Illinois you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, that's the heart of Appalachia and the Rust Belt. There's a lot of discontent from those regions, you know, having spent my fair amount of time now, these last few years riding around and, and spending time in these rural communities that have lost all hope. There's a lot of resentment. And a lot of those folks, like I said, hail from, from our coverage area and, you know, played a big role on that day. And, you know, Post-industrial America, I like to say, handed Trump the presidency in 2016. And in 2020, they took it away because those states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, that went for him in 2016, flipped for Biden in 2020. And that's right at the heart of, of our coverage area. And I say without a hint of hyperbole that post-industrial America, in that sense, has a great deal of influence on the rest of the world, just because of how much power they wield in, in American politics. So you said that it was, that you have a global audience. How do you incorporate the stories from other countries? What countries are you in? So the post-industrial experience is not limited to American cities. There are post-industrial cities and regions throughout the world. It just so happens that I split my time between two countries. I live in the U.S. in the Pittsburgh area, but I also live in Croatia in the capital, Zagreb. I have a half Croatian, half American daughter, so I go back and forth. Croatia, just so happens, was the one-time cradle of what was then Yugoslavia's manufacturing, steel production, coal producing, heart of what was an economic giant for decades that has since 
had to reinvent itself in a post-Yugoslavia era away from all that manufacturing it used to do and other production to find new sources of revenue. A lot of it is tourism. And while tourism is a great thing for the coast and and more and more people are actually visiting the capital and other parts of Croatia, it's not a, a final solution for all the lost wealth that came with the disappearance of their manufacturing and agricultural sectors. So they're still trying to figure out a way to reinvent themselves. In that sense, Croatia is very post-industrial. I was in Bosnia last summer and I did some reporting from there and you know, it made comparisons between things that I saw happening in the Balkans and what was happening in the US in terms of politics and the extremism between the two. We've had reporting from Ukraine, in fact. When the war first broke out, we had reporting from another one of my old Afghanistan friends and colleagues, a guy named Martin Kuz, who's a wonderful writer and reporter, did a story for us through his own particular lens because his father had immigrated from Ukraine decades earlier and told the story of his father's own struggles through his, his time as a conflict journalist being back in Ukraine for the first time ever, having never been there before and seeing the country at war. We try to take a story that's international and figure out ways to make it relatable to a post-industrial audience. And we often find in the feedback from our readers and in the experience we have telling these stories, that those connections are what really resonate with people. We can draw the, the lines between what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in the Rust Belt, in Appalachia, you know, because people do have a vested interest in what happens, you know, not just because the country's divided on, on the issue of should we or should we not be supporting Ukraine, but, you know, there are a lot of people of Ukrainian ancestry in America, especially in our region, that would say, absolutely, they're all for, you know, Slava Ukraini. So. Uh, Carmen, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Bolevsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.